Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. And then it would get to the point where you were drinking beyond your will. So I was, I didn't want to be doing it anymore. And I would try really hard not to, but because I had never really processed any of my emotions and I had in in many ways avoided myself for so long, uh, it gets to the point where you can't live with or without alcohol. Those were the powerful words of Joe Gleason, whose story we'll revisit in a moment. Great to be back here with you, Humans of Purpose Nation. Well, Tuesday night was a massive night for me. I had the uh, great opportunity in Fortune to MC the Startup Victoria's Impact Pitch Night in partnership with Impact Investment Group. It looked like there were about 450 people in the crowd, and although I couldn't see too well due to the lighting, um, amazing uh, sounds coming out of the audience and good experience had by all. Um, also for me, a great part of that night was meeting lots of humans of purpose who were in attendance, uh, future guests, former guests, and many listeners who I loved meeting for the first time. I also was lucky to bump into McCartan there, who is actually one of our very first Patreon supporters, and he's been with us, uh, supporting us each and every week uh, throughout the journey. So great to meet you, Mac, if you're listening today, and uh, really enjoyed catching up and look forward to coffees in the near future. So listeners may or not know this, but um, unless you tell me that you listen to the podcast and tell me your experiences with the podcast, I have no idea how I'm going and whether the podcast is meeting your needs and whether you're enjoying it. So that's why we run an annual listener type form survey. We've just launched our second annual survey, which takes less than five minutes to complete and will help me to better understand who you are, what you want me to improve about the podcast and how to create something that adds more value to your life each week. I'm also keen to move the podcast to a community-supported model, and I'd like to understand how, with your help, I can ensure that the podcast is financially sustainable into the future. So it would be great if you could have a go at that one. I'll pop the link in the show notes. And there's also a a complete now button at the bottom of uh, the humansofpurpose.com website that actually says launch me. So head there. Um, entries closed the last week of October, so there's about a month to get involved in that comp, and all entrants go into the draw to win their choice of $100 gift cards or a 50% discount on Humans of Purpose promotional packages. Today, I've got quite an amazing episode for you, and it's um, it's a bit of a deviation from our normal format. I've got with me today Joe Gleason, who is the National Philanthropy Manager at World Vision Australia, and she's also involved as the director of Give One. And I, I originally, when I met with Joe, uh, had thought we were going to talk mainly about um, philanthropy, and we do talk a bit about philanthropy in this episode, but we do also explore a raft of um, Joe's uh, personal challenges that she's faced uh, across a range of areas, ranging from... Um, drug and alcohol to um, to sexuality to uh, mental health and I think this is really so courageous from Joe to come on the show and to give of her experience and her her um, her life's journey so freely and openly so that we can all learn from something but also explore our own vulnerability a little bit and to, to understand the power of sharing these stories because at some time or another we've all faced similar challenges and I think um, when we finished this episode I was just blown away by Joe and I still very much am in awe of her for sharing today so 
do listen to this podcast right to the end. It's, um, as I said, it's, it's different to our usual kind of setup, and I think there's a lot to be learned here. I've also left in the um, the Patreon content this week because I think it's important to share Joe's insights. Okay, enjoy. I want to send a quick shout out as always to our wonderful Patreon supporters, our community including Bonnie B, Stuart M, Joel F, McCartan and Misha D times too, enable us to make a really high quality podcast every week uh, without as much pressure on the bottom line. So thank you very much for that, guys. Um, I'd urge you to, if you do want to support the podcast and get behind the show and receive some great rewards in the process, just click the link in our show notes and uh, you'll also be one of those aforementioned in our wonderful supportive community. Joe, great to have you here. Thanks so much for coming. My pleasure, Mike. Good to be here. And you're a fly-in, fly-out worker right now. You, you, you've, you've ducked in, you look terrific, and then you're off to Sydney, is it? Mm-hmm. Wow, yep. terrific. No rest for the wicked. No, well, I don't, well, you seem quite lovely to me, but if you want to call yourself wicked, that's <laughs> fine. Um, let's, without further ado, jump into your journey. I'm fascinated to hear a bit about uh, your world, your work, um, your world vision now, but um, you've been on a journey, so um, mm-hmm. feel free to from however far back you like, take me into that world and our listeners too, please. Sure, love to. bit nervous too as well um, because I've decided to be quite honest today um, around how I got here, which is, um, yeah, not, which is not, um, I wouldn't have foreseen the path I've just walked, if that makes sense and that might make a bit more sense to your listeners after you hear my story but um I'll uh, get through get through it as quickly as I can so you can ask questions no please take your time so I suppose uh born in country Victoria eldest of three um grew up uh you know in the fresh air loved school um grew up in a very Christian home um so I had great parents still married um I was a relatively sensitive uh, and internal thinker right from the beginning. So I really absorbed uh, Christian doctrine and a lot of the things that we heard and were taught in Sunday schools and, you know, church camps and uh, later on high school. So I internalised that worldview um, and there are a lot of things about it that I still value and have been incredibly uh, powerful in my life, particularly around giving and tithing and um, looking after the poor and all of those kind of scriptural basis of generosity. And And tithing, do you want to just touch on what that means for anyone who doesn't know? So tithing is uh, a suggestion, a biblical suggestion that you would give 10% of your um, wealth or income away which I think is a beautiful virtue. Um, so growing up I, you know, very much stuck like glue to that kind of uh, inspiration. And as I started to develop, you know, turned into a teenager, what happened for me is I realised that I was same-sex attracted. So I was a sensitive person in a beautiful home, having a beautiful life with a beautiful framework that all of a sudden <laughs> ran into the wall and I realised um, at about the same age all of my friends at school were starting to get crushes on boys, I was getting crushes on them. So it was a, a really um, surprising experience for me because I had been told and uh, had internalised a lot of what scripture says around gender 
and around relationships and sexual purity and all kinds of things which a young mind struggle to process, well, my young mind struggled to process anyway, let alone when I realised I didn't align with it. Um, so the way I handled that as a young person was I hid it so I didn't tell anyone until my early 20s really. But um, I think looking back now, I realise I started to have, in a way, two, an internal world and an external world. And I also was, I wasn't honest with myself or the people around me. And um, I started to collect a lot of shame. Internalised homophobia um, is what an adult might call it, but as a child it was um, shame. And it's been explained to me over the years the difference between shame and guilt mm. is that shame, um, guilt is you've some, do you think you've done something wrong? Shame is that you think you are wrong. Or others make you feel that you've done something wrong. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah, so I was very much in the shame camp of I, there was something wrong with me. I thought I would outgrow it too, but I never did. Um, so that was kind of happening. And while that was happening, some other really beautiful things were happening in my life. My dad in particular was really strong on um, teaching us to be responsible and care for others. He used to tell us that, you know, you get your pocket money or you start earning a wage and you give 10% away, you save 10% and then you live off the other 80 and you do what you want with that. Oh, it's, it's so simple. I love it. So simple. Yeah. Um, so that was kind of been um, passed down to me in terms of ethics. And when I was uh, 16, I got the chance to go on a school trip uh, to Nepal, which so I went to a private Anglican school and we were all, you know, middle to upper class kids really wanting for nothing. Mm. And the deal was uh, if I saved half of the fee, my parents would throw in the other half. So that happened. And then so 30 of us went along on this trip. We were spending three weeks hiking and a couple of days in Kathmandu visiting some facilities and an eye hospital and things. Anyway, so 30 of us, you know, affluent Australian kids land in Kathmandu, walk across the tarmac and through a crowd of, oh gosh, probably 60 or 70 people, beggars. And the image that really stuck in my mind then still was a young girl who was probably about eight or nine and she was holding a tiny boy who I assume was her brother and he had no feet. Oh, and, my God. Yeah, and they were dressed in rags and begging for money and we were loaded on a bus and taken to wherever we were going for the first night and no one spoke for an hour. Wow. Do you think it was like privilege overload shock? I think so. Mm. Uh, so I'd done, we'd all done, you know, very much as, you know, young Australian rites of passage like the uh, 40-hour famine. Yep. You know, and and my parents had sponsored children through World Vision. And we'd done the letters and we'd done all of that stuff. So I, so I knew intellectually that poverty existed, um, but it was the first time that I had been confronted with it myself. What's that like, um, the difference between intellectualised and experienced poverty? I think I would describe it as a shock. Um, and I think I was faced with a human being holding another little tiny human being, and it I'm a quite, human um, being. Visceral, actually. Yeah, it was. It was a profound wake-up call that not everyone in the world lives like me. So it, put, it puts your problems into perspective, I suppose. Um, but it was definitely overwhelming. 
But the good thing about it was the structure of the trip. You know, we didn't, we weren't left in helplessness. We visited uh, Fred Hollow's Eye Hospital in Kathmandu. And that was a really pivotal moment in my life looking back, realizing what I think at the time it was about $15 you could restore, restore someone's sight. Yeah. It's $25 now. It's such, it's such, um, Fred Hollow's is just amazing, but also the, the link between the transaction and what it does and the impact is just mm-hmm. so. Clear, mm-hmm. excuse the pun, but I mean, it's just, it just makes so much sense. Mm, it is, yeah, it's yeah. beautiful. I yeah. love it. I support them mm. still. Um, beautiful work. And mm. we went there, and I remember feeling okay, I, I can understand what $15 is, and I can understand that I can go and earn $15 at the mm. milk bar wherever I was working and make a contribution. So it goes from that shock and horror in many ways of the way these people were living, Hmm. Um, a feeling of helplessness and then a feeling of, okay, I can do something about that, even if it's a small something. So that, so, you know, getting back to Australia and life carries on, I I suppose when I I left uh, school and went to university in Melbourne. But so just to to stamp that in the story, so that's a significant point in your narrative of understanding sort of um, poverty, but also the power of generosity. Mm Mm-hmm. That's right. Um, and so fast-forwarding a you know, couple of years, finish school, go to uni, leave home. And I think that that was when I st- things started to get a bit dark for me. I realized I hadn't, still hadn't told anyone I was gay. I was going to um, Christian churches and trying to date boys and things. Is that weird? Is it sort of like just going through the motions or how, how did you – is there a disconnect there? Um, I think I – I I would pray that my uh, attraction to women would go away. Yep. I wanted to be straight because I thought that's what my parents wanted of me. I thought that was God, what God yep. wanted of me. Um, so it started to fracture me, to be perfectly honest. And um, the only way I knew, because I wasn't talking to anyone about it, was to start drinking. And I did. <laughs> I did start drinking. Mm. That's seen as a very normalised response, isn't it? Mm-hmm. It's sort of like if you go through a tough time, that's sort of what you're supposed to do in the country or wherever in Australia, really. Yeah, maybe. Mm. I think my parents aren't big drinkers. Mm. Um, I, I hadn't had that modelled to me as such, but mm. I just I was in a lot of internal pain, so yep. I decided that a few drinks would help. Yep. Um, and over the years, that got uh, – a few drinks turned into a few more drinks turned into a few more drinks. Yep. And I, I, you know, this is, this is speeding over a decade of mm. my life, but I turned into a full, a full blown alcoholic. Mm. I was drinking, um, very, very dangerous amounts of alcohol every day. Mm. Mm. Um, and to give us just an idea of what, the, what that's like for a person who's just used to having a social drink, how many drinks might that be? Oh, a lot. Yeah. Like I could drink a bottle of vodka. Okay. Yeah. So significant. Yeah, very, very, very dangerous levels. And are you drinking at that stage to the point where you're not conscious or you're just you're, – is it like um, a functional drinking or is it more like to wipe yourself out drinking? Or? Well, you would seek oblivion, mm-hmm. yeah. And then it would get to the point where you were drinking beyond your will. So I was – I didn't want to be doing it anymore. Yeah. Yep. And I would try really hard not to, but because I – had never really processed any of my emotions and I had in, a, in many ways avoided myself for so long, uh, it gets to the point where you can't live with or without alcohol. And 
I was still spinning around in shame as well. And I think on the outside, you know, my life, I was relatively functional at points and it's progressive illness addiction. It Mm. gets worse over time. Mm. And that's what happened for me. Um, And so I was wrestling with a lot of things, Um, the guilt and shame around drinking, the guilt and shame around being gay, the disappointment of um, not being uh, what, what my you, parents wanted me to be, what you know, what you're expected to be, maybe. That's right. Yep. Uh, so it kind of just snowballed, and I've had this really unusual experience internally where I had so much that I really believed in generosity, you know, or this this really spiritual life, which mm. was just so important to me and still is so important to me. And then this real, real darkness, which to me is 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 and will always be there a little bit mm. you know, like a real pull to 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 darkness if i'm not really careful mm. uh so what happened for me ultimately is i got to a point where i couldn't do it anymore and i hated myself and the way i was living that much and i'd done some damage to to my i, I would describe myself as emotionally physically spiritually bankrupt and um I decided I, I tried any everything I could consciously think about to stop drinking. I'd come out at this point and that didn't go so well at the start and I had relationships with women and, you know, um, dating an active alcoholic <laughs> isn't I wouldn't recommend it. <laughs> um, and so I decided that because I couldn't stop, I had to stop it. Mm. And so I'd planned to kill myself. Mm. And I thought at the last minute, the day before, I was going to enact that plan that it would kill my mum, and that isn't very nice. Mm. And so I thought I'll call a rehab. So I Googled rehab in Melbourne. Um, and the lady on the phone was lovely, and she's like, no worries, I'll call you back, sweetie. And an hour later, <laughs> she calls me back, and she goes, come in on Tuesday for an assessment. And I went on Tuesday. I the, they ask you all these questions, you know, one to ten, and I answered ten at all of them. And she looked at me and she said, "You're an alcoholic." And I said, "Yes." <laughs> <laughs> She's like, "Okay, we'll take you in on Thursday." Was this funny to you at the time, or were you two of the throes of it? Because it's very funny now the way you tell it, it is and I can funny tell now. that you're finding it funny. A uh, lot. Once you get sober, yeah, Mike, yeah. heaps okay, of things are funny okay. about it. Cool. But when you're there, you're not just, funny. Oh man, not yeah. funny. So I went into voluntary, twenty-eight uh, day rehab facility. And what happened for me in there was um, for the first time in my life I got honest, really honest, and also I met other people like me. So because there, there wasn't really people in my friendship groups or in my family that were drinking and doing, you know, seeking oblivion like I was constantly, I I didn't have um, anyone to stories to identify mm. with. Mm. So tell me just, just quickly what I just touch on. Many people may have a fairly negative or biased idea about what people in rehab might be like, other people in rehab, if they haven't been to rehab themselves. Mm-hmm. How did you find the people in rehab that you connected with and how, how, how was that? Did you have preconceptions about who might be in there and for what reasons and was that dispelled? No. no? Okay. <laughs> um, this, I was lucky. The facility that I went to, all of the staff, including the, do- oh, the doctor's, and some of the psychologists, I think, were all ex-addicts and alcoholics. And so that helped. Nurses on the wards, all of them. 
So that was amazing. They were amazing. There were some frightening people in there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but there were some really beautiful people. Some of the couple of um, guys in my life at the moment who are just my best friends and we mm. met in there. Mm. One in particular, we have exactly the same sobriety date. <laughs> oh, He's wow. one of my best friends. Yeah. Like I, I think addiction isn't – doesn't discriminate. Mm. You know, there's wealthy people in there. There's people from all socioeconomic, ethnic backgrounds, sexuality. Mm. Um, it was a really, really interesting mix. And what about the connections that, that you form in there? Like is it sort of – is connecting with people through so much recovery and sort of pain and, you know, going through that process, um, does that sort of – is that um, a very strong bond or is it sort of a regular friendship? I think it can get pretty messy. Mm. I think, you know, there's, if you're addicted to a substance, you're by definition codependent. Mm. I think you, you need to be careful and they counsel you a lot around having healthy relationships yep. or healthy boundaries whilst you're in early sobriety in the first year without a drink or a drug because uh, it's, I mean, I wasn't well. You know, I wasn't mm. I wasn't well. Mm. I wasn't a well puppy. Um but it was that that facility changed my life, saved my life, and has connected me into a group of community of people, um, other al- alcoholics and addicts, uh, um, who have just invested in me and given so generously of their time, of their stories, of their you know years and years of recovery, and um, transformed my life. Uh, since I got sober, I would describe it very much as a spiritual journey. I kind of walked out of that darkness. I turned away from it and I started walking towards the light, mm. metaphorically. Mm. Um, and I've gone from emotional, spiritual, uh, physical bankruptcy to mm. the exact opposite. I must that. say, I have tremendous respect for your candor in all of this and how you come at this. Um, because when I um, we met for a coffee to talk about potentially doing a podcast, we got set up was, was by Will. Mm. Yep. So Will said you should meet Joe. She's <laughs> awesome. He didn't mention any of this stuff, and like we met, and then I thought it was. Um, like I had no idea. I just thought that you were another interesting person uh, in in philanthropy, and that would be a good topic. But the way that you brought this stuff up, you didn't have to at all. And mm-hmm. the, the way you've chosen to um, share this for the benefit of others, I think, just speaks volumes about you and the type of person you are. Mm, thank you. That's kind yeah. of you. I um, Will knows I don't drink. I, I don't think he knows my story. Mm. I don't think I've ever told him, um, but he certainly will now. Um, <laughs> I think the reason I decided to talk about it, Mike, was because I've ended up in a profession—a profession that makes so much sense to me. Knowing, looking back, mm. you know, I'm—I um, work in philanthropy. I'm absolutely passionate about the power of generosity mm. for the beneficiary, but but for me, my loyalty and my passion really is about the heart of the person who's giving it away, and. My journey to hell and back, you know, they say if you're going through hell, keep going, right, mm. um, has been ter- has turned into the richest blessing in my life because I now get to give it away. Yeah. I get to give away the experience I've had um, and share that with other alcoholics who are fanatics, who yep. are struggling, and they get hope too because it was so freely given to me by mm. others. Mm. And that's an investment more so of time than anything else, but I've also seen that happen time and time again with money. You know, I, I 
I give away, I support three charities, World Vision, Fred Hollows and the channel, which mm-hmm. is the mm-hmm. giving circle for gay and lesbian. Yeah, we, we had Georgia Matthews on some time ago who talked a fair bit about the channel. But, mm-hmm. yeah, if you want to, do you want to give another a quick little? No, other than it's yep. great. Yep. Um, and the reason I support those charities and I do that, in a, you know, in a generous mm-hmm. way is because those three institutions have had a big, um, well, those cause areas, I suppose, a really powerful uh, role in opening me up to give of myself. Yeah. Um, 40 Hour Family, when I was a kid, you know, I work for World Vision now, obviously, Fred Hollows, because I've been to their high hospital and he was, you know, that, that organisation was the first one that showed me I could do something about suffering of others and the channel you know, any, anything I can do to help any other kids going through what I kind of went through internally is, is something I'd like to keep doing. Yeah. Yeah, and so you've chosen those um, charities obviously because they've touched you at certain points mm-hmm. in your journey in life and I think that's, you know, a very important part of giving that maybe people don't think about much or maybe they think about too much. Where would you put that on the spectrum? If you had to think about uh, meaningful moments mm. versus, um, you know, statistical uh, outcomes or... You know, you mm. know, oh, like how to evidence. make the decision about yes. where to give you money. Yeah, yeah. I I quite like just following your own passion. Mm. I think that what's happened in your own life, you know, what what sparkles to you out of all of the causes, which one speaks most? It's loudly. the Marie Kondo principle. Yeah, does it spark joy? Yeah, kind of. <laughs> you know what what big problem in the world can't you get out of your head, yeah. or you know. What touches you? Mm. I think there's enough of us that if we're all pretty generous, we can do a whole damn lot of good and solve a lot of issues. So I would say follow your interest, follow your passion, follow what sparkles to you. So did you commence in philanthropy sort of following this? or Talk to me a bit about timelines of what you were doing. Did you have a different career before? or I did. Yep. I studied business mm-hmm. at RMIT. I majored in entrepreneurship. Mm-hmm. So I graduated with you know, in theory, a skill set to start businesses. Yep. But I wasn't an expert in anything, so we did marketing, law, accounting. We kind of went shallow and broad. Yeah, reminds me of me very much. So doing commerce at Melbourne, it's just like let's just do wishy-washy management subjects and see if we can scrape through. <laughs> totally, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was good. So I left. I left uni, and I didn't exactly know what to do next. I worked for a big homewares company. I ran kind of a small warehouse for them and an inventory system. Bored myself to death, but got some discipline. Um, and then I moved to Cairns, I think, and I started a business with my cousin. We started a, a healthcare clinic uh, together, and that went really well because mm. there wasn't anything. It was kind of a one-stop shop for chronic disease. Um, and, yeah, that went really well. We did that together for four years maybe, a bit more. Um, and then I sold out of that, and she's still up there running it. Um, then I worked for an insurance broker for a couple of years and by then my drinking was pretty scary. Oh, well, the insurance broker will do that for you. <laughs> yes. I didn't like insurance. It was a nice, nice company. And Kansas, Kansas is beautiful. Mm. But, um, and then I moved back, I think, to Melbourne and that's when I decided I, I needed to try, like I was still trying to stop drinking, but I was also simultaneously trying to focus on the good things, use my talents for good. So I did a research project into giving called the Give One Project. Mm-hmm. And we modelled, um, it wasn't so much major gifts, so one person giving a million, it was more what if a million people gave 1%. Yep. 
And that really turns me on. Like I love the thought of um, everyone giving a little bit. Yeah. I love that. Yep. Um, really passionate about that. Like to see more participation. In I'd Australia. love to see that, and I, I think it's interesting because I, I don't know. Like I think you and I come from a similar place with that tithing sort of principle. The ten percent rule is sort of well supported, not just by us, but people like Peter Singer and mm. you know, beyond beyond religion. It's sort of known as quite a good base level. But then you see these sort of corporate giving pledges that are around that one percent mark. Mm-hmm. I'm like you, you have much more money than a person. How? Why only one percent? What's the story there? Yeah. But then I think you know, do you, are you going for just mass? crowds but people really can't afford to give so much more than they actually give it's strange like 10 percent is just it's not much i mean maybe they shoot very low and just going for the volume there i just i have trouble with the figure because if you think about one percent for a lot of people it's just a it's it's a Mm. spec Mm -hmm. yeah i don't know if i agree i I think a 10 percent tithe for most people these days is unachievable you've got a mortgage you're putting kids through school Mm -hmm. i think 10 percent is probably too much I would what be, about five percent? I think it would depend. I mean, it depends, doesn't it? It's personal for everybody. Why don't they just bracket it all? Um, they, they should just like um, connect it to the tax bracket. So <laughs> you know, down on a sliding scale from maybe ten percent all the way down to one percent, and that'd be best. Yeah, Australians would not giving. like yeah, that. Yeah, they would not. No. <laughs> no. I've just suddenly become very unpopular. But anyway. <laughs> Crazy idea number one. Yeah. I think because it's for me it's not just about the act of giving Mm. um, money. It's the heart that gives it, right? Mm, So you could have someone who's got – who earns 400 grand a year who gives 1% and Mm -hmm. you'd be like that's not that generous. Um, You you could have um, someone on the same wage who gives 25%. Yeah, but okay, so you brought morality into it. So I have to ask, you know, does that mean – is thirty grand from somebody who's a terrible person towards a charity um, worse than thirty grand uh, from a good person that goes to charity? Like, can you do you, do you value them differently? Well, that's an interesting question. Is mm. there anything? Is is there such thing as bad money? Yeah, I like that question. So um, at World Vision, we have a we won't take um, proceeds of gambling, mm, and nice. we w- we wouldn't take. That's a really good example of bad money, actually. Yeah, and we wouldn't because Tim Costello, our former CEO, is passionate about. Is it very, very anti-gambling? There's two ways to look at that, though. I think you can, yes, you don't want to take money that will um, not not align well with your brand or with your mission. You can argue that gambling causes poverty and mm. Ford Vision kind of isn't keen on that. Um, but there's other ways to look at that. For you, sure. You could say, well, that's almost like doing damage twice, right? Because yeah. you've taken money off yeah. people and now people that could legitimately use it in developing contexts, we're yeah. not going to not going to take that money. But I love that kind of discussion. I really do. I find that interesting. Mm. Um, what about the idea of like, um, you know, hypothecation? Have you heard of that before, that mm. principle? where So just say there's the um, 5% hypothecation on all alcohol sales in the country. So that, that means, you know, that for all the alcohol that's sold in, in volumetric quantities or whatnot, a certain percentage goes back into community education about how you shouldn't drink that much. Mm. So, so it's kind of – it's quite an interesting one, isn't it? Because mm. it's sort of saying – we have this necessary evil and we're going to use part of the, the proceeds of that to fund um, that doing less damage. Mm-hmm. Or we could just invest less in that overall, but we're not going to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we can't change behaviour. So mm-hmm. that's an interesting one for me because it's about how necessary do we deem some of these evils to be without wanting to be too puritanical about it. I mean, evils, evils, but just undesirable behaviours maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. You can get 
you can get into all kind of grey ethical yeah, areas yeah. When, when you talk about this stuff. We I had th- this come up at work, which, which was interesting for me because um, we, were, we were talking about um, engaging with a foundation that was um, was selling uh, reasonably unhealthy foods and sort of whether we would take money from them. Mm-hmm. And I, I just said to the, the guy who raised that, um, of course we would. We need money to deliver more services. So totally. The, the fact, do we care more about like – promoting less and like people are not going to stop eating unhealthy food because we take that money mm-hmm. and we need that money to deliver more services so it'd be kind of foolish not to take that money yeah on principle yeah that's so, my, that's my stance yeah, too yeah. with, with I'm, exceptions I'm, like gambling it's different um, to gambling. Stealing that's for sure different to gambling what yeah. other um things are on the bad money list for you guys at world vision so gambling anything that would exploit children would yep. be a big a big uh no no yep yeah and do damage to the communities where we're doing work yeah, yeah so tell, let's talk a bit about what you're doing at world vision i'd love to hear a bit about your role and also um if you're observing any interesting trends in the philanthropy and giving space at the moment mm-hmm. so i'm the national manager of philanthropy so i um, lead a team of six or seven i think it is now um where they're called relationship managers so we build relationships with people with capacity to make impact at scale for the world's most vulnerable children so we uh yeah, we're looking for people with a heart for our work and with um, bigger pocketbooks who who might support, um, who might be able to scale some of the work that we're doing. Yeah, which can be across. I mean, World Vision's in ninety something countries yeah. all around the world. Every ten seconds, we connect yep. someone who doesn't have fresh water to fresh water. Um, three schools a day. You know, it's the footprint is amazing. It's a big organisation globally doing big things, but in comparison to the size of the need, you know, we need to grow. And I think there's a real uh, space in the Australian philanthropic community for some flagship giving hmm. for international aid and development. Um, we can we we know how to uh, help, and and we can do that at scale. We have the in- infrastructure all over the world, so we're. Um, we're actively seeking people who would love to help women and girls, you know, maternal health. Maybe talk wash. about some of the projects coming up that you're most excited about uh, or anything new or innovative that you're doing in the space. Or mm. if you want to talk about existing projects, that's cool too. Okay. Well, there's so much to choose from. It's I, like, just pick one of the 9,000 projects. <laughs> <laughs> I think. So I'll talk about stuff I've seen personally. Yep. Um, so I went to Malawi last year and that was the first trip to – um, see some of the field work. Um, I'd never been to Africa before, and I hadn't. It hadn't dawned on me what financial exclusion was. I so these so particularly women in, living um, in these countries, they don't have bank accounts. They can't access finance. Um, they're financially excluded, and it, and it, I mean, to someone living in Australia, that's just incomprehensible. Yeah, and so. The economic empowerment work that we do, a lot of which um, really ad- is um, aimed at women, is so profound to see. In a, I met this woman who was standing in the middle of this impeccable soybean field, and in two seasons she'd gone from living in this you know filthy straw hut to she's got a brick house with a tin roof and she's got the best farm in the district and she's really she we have a world vision has a subsidiary um, called vision fund Mm -hmm. which is essentially a bank for the poor yep and it works alongside our programming in the field so is that sort of micro credit microfinance loans yeah 
and she was ranting and raving about um, the loan she'd had and she'd paid it off. She's going to get another one next year. This She had a plan to expand, um, sending her kids to school now. and Like everything had changed. Well, that's I think the ripple effect from microcredit is significant and I also think the repayment rates are staggering and, and staggering. really quite eye-opening. It works. Um, yeah. Yep. It's something like 97% of yeah. all loans repaid. Possibly my favourite um, figure or, you know, analogy as to why humans are awesome uh, <laughs> in, in most parts of the world um, because you could you just have to decide to trust people and mm-hmm. usually they will mm-hmm. do the right thing mm-hmm. by you. Yeah. So that kind of work is, you know, that's the giving. You, do you give them a fish or do you teach them how to fish? Like, mm. That chick and now fish. Like she's, <laughs> and she's an entrepreneur. I looked at her and she there was a translator talking. Yeah. Um, and she had the a twi- she had the twinkle. She had the entrepreneurial twinkle in her Ooh, eye. We love that. And she was now connected. And and I thought, oh, okay. I went back to work. My boss Andrew is the chief of private funding, and mm. I, I I saw him. I ran up to him, and I, he's worked for World Vision for twelve years. Mm. And I shook him, and I was like, "You should see. We do such amazing work in the field." And he just <laughs> laughed. But that kind of stuff is. It's just awe-inspiring. I mean, generosity does that, right? Yeah. And that is, I don't care if it's 30 bucks a month or $30,000 a month mm. or $3 million a month, every little bit counts and every little bit is needed. And for me, it's about, it's actually a spiritual principle, generosity. I, I envision it, Mike, it, um like an offering. Well, this is, I'm really glad that you flagged that because what I wanted to ask you about, which I thought was quite fascinating, is that you talked about sort of moving away from religion a little bit mm. or how being in conflict with religion. But I noticed that so much of your belief system now is kind of still draws from a lot of that kind of traditional, um, I don't want to say canon, but, you know, uh, principle base. Yeah. So, so things like tithing um, or charitable giving very strongly, you know, Judeo-Christian and also Islamic principle. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's there for you. What you said about honesty and needing to become honest, I thought mm-hmm. was very, um, just very Christian. Like it's it's quite mm-hmm. a Christian thing. So mm-hmm. how, how do you reconcile that? And is that kind of, are you good now with taking what you can from the religion and sort of using that in a way that works for you? Yeah. Yes. I would describe myself as a spiritual person. Yep. Um, a lot of Christianity, obviously it's the framework I grew up in. So I, I yeah. mean, there's so much of it that I love. Yep. Someone told me the other day, this, I don't, I would need to, I should have fact-checked this before the podcast, <laughs> but there's like 1,600 references in the Bible about feeding the poor, mm. you know, and I'm sure probably 20 about sex. Yeah. And so it was, I, my view of it was really out of kilter, right? Like the point is, you know, good triumphs over evil and yeah. look after each other. Mm. Um, and I love that. That that to me is life giving. Well, the humanism from all of that, I think, mm-hmm. is, seems like what you've taken, and mm-hmm. great respect for that. And I think um, you know philanthropy as well. It's, it's it's no accident you're in that field for the good of man, and you know uh, for all of us, for the good of all of us, mm-hmm. um, and uh, for love of beings. And I think it's just yeah, it's awesome. So I want to dig a little bit more into you and uh, what makes you who you are. Um, we'll jump into our, our Patreon questions for our wonderful uh, Patreon supporter community. Um, I might fire one off the cab straight away. What is one thing you believe that others don't? Ooh, that's a good question. And I'm sure there are many for you, so I should have just uh, given you more space for that. <laughs> I think that 
the most important thing I can do is discover my truth and speak it kindly. What is your morning and evening routine? Oh, um, I get up whenever my dog wakes me up and I feed her and then I have um, some recovery books. They're called Daily Reflections and you just read something like, so like it's a nice spiritual poem and then coffee. And evening, walk the dog, bit of Netflix, go Love to it. bed. It's, it's strikingly similar to my mm. routine. <laughs> Very good. Um, what is the best thing you've added into your life or routine in the past six months? Ooh, the past six months. I think, I think it's a little bit of meditation, yeah. Are you using an app for that or how are you doing that? Um, I tried using Sam Harris's app. Oh, I love Sam Harris. But his voice, it makes me fall asleep. No, so Isn't for that me- good for meditation? <laughs> or maybe it's not. Maybe. I don't know. For me, it's just uh, simple mantras, hmm. yeah. So um, are you, does that mean you're doing TM or you're just, just practicing? Just repetitive. Yeah, repetitive, yep. cool. Um, excellent. What is one book that you think everyone should read or that you'd highly recommend? I'm reading a lot of Brene Brown stuff at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the her book on leadership, um, it, the power of vulnerability, that kind of stuff. That to me links really heavily with my life experience around addiction. Like I, they call it the gift, the gift of desperation. I got, I was forced to get really vulnerable, mm-hmm. and that's turned really powerful. So I would, I would recommend a lot of her work. Yeah, uh, daring to be great is that one of them? Dare or to lead. Dare, I think. Yeah, dare, yeah. I knew there's dare in it. Did you see when she came out? I didn't. Oh. I wanted to. Yeah. Yes, she's she's one of the. Um, she's really. I feel like she's really blown up in the past um, mm-hmm. six months to a year. She's in yeah. recovery. She hasn't had a drink for over twenty years. She's in recovery. Mm-hmm. Wow. She speaks about it in the book, so I'm not outing her. I had no idea. Yeah. Amazing. She's a legend. I've got to check her out. You do. I think you put me onto something. Cool. Is there a quote or expression that you try to live by? Gosh, there's many, many, many of them. Um, yeah, I, I find myself often at the moment saying your will, not mine, and that's my way of getting myself out of my way and letting the universe or whatever you want to call it kind of God or be more in, be more in the flow. You know, Joe's not in charge. She just shows up and does her best and the rest takes care of itself. Ah, so that's sort of like focusing on what you can control. Yeah. Not worrying about what you can't. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. What is one thing that people should do more and one thing that people should do less? I think listen would be more and less thinking. Less thinking. Fascinating answer. Fascinating. I'll try and think less about that. Mm, Thank you. (laughs) Um, how does a sense of purpose influence how you live your life? I can't live without it. Yeah. I, it was killing me, having no purpose, literally. Mm. And so um, has this process or the recovery been a huge part of finding that, that purpose of meaning again? Yes. And shedding away a lot of the resentments and old ideas that I had. Well, this might answer one of your previous questions. My favourite quote of all time mm. was Carl Jung who said, People don't have ideas. Ideas have people. Oh, that is that is awesome. And it's like, yeah, that's right. I so my experience as a young person was that I had I had latched on to particular ideas that took possession of me, and they almost killed me. And getting free of that 
was letting them go and replacing them with new ideas. So may I ask now, are you a bit more circumspect about sort of ideas? Like do you, are you kind of, do you know what I mean? Like when you hear a new idea, do you kind of try and stand back a bit from it and not let it take you on? I love ideas. I've just realised that you need to be very careful which ones you give power to and which ones you internalise. Hmm. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much for answering my little Patreon uh, section for our wonderful supporters. My pleasure. We'll move back into the the main uh, stage. Um, I wanted to ask you, do you think that Australians by and large are generous people? Yes, I do. Though I think we could be much more generous. And I think that so for for several years now, the number of Australians claiming tax deductible gifts in their tax returns is in decline. Mm -hmm. So conclusion you draw from that is that participation is dropping that could have a lot to do with the size of the workforce i don't know the older generation leaving i don't you know i haven't looked at it that cleverly um clever more clever people than i should do that but but there's less of us giving um and that really concerns me because if less of us are giving that's less hearts that are being transformed from my perspective and connected to other causes and other people so, and it, but as a fundraising professional working in big charities, I, I actually do think that we need the elephant in the room is that we also need to have a look at to make sure that some of the practices some charities are engaging in aren't having a detrimental effect on donor experience. And what does that mean specifically uh, in your mind? So I think that giving has been or sometimes can be uh, reduced down to confrontation, harassment. <laughs> yes, the, the, you mean the physical argy-bargy? Un, well, unwanted asking, Yep. Um, which I think is having a detrimental ex- detrimental effect on donor experience, which, of course, is going to drop participation rates. Yeah, but, I mean, so interesting. I mean, but they big charities still invest in it because it's effective, but at the same time I have a big problem with it too because mm-hmm. sometimes I just want to walk unimpeded somewhere and not have people wave crap in my face and actually I'm far less likely to give to anyone in the future who impedes me just wanting to walk to the train station. Yes, me too. Yeah. And I don't want to be, you know, these are my opinions, they're mm-hmm. not the opinions of yep. um, anyone else, but I, I don't want to be disrespectful to the, to face-to-face fundraisers mm-hmm. or direct marketing fundraising or telemarketing because it generates a lot of millions yep. of dollars for causes that need money. Mm. So th- those revenue streams are absolutely um, ethical in their own right. It's yeah. not it's not yeah. unethical to ask no, people for money. That's not, yeah. I suppose we're, we're both not coming at it from that no. angle, but I think we're sort of more asking the, the question about uh, is it right? Yes, uh, it's not, getting so competitive. Yeah. And some of the marketing practices, I think, are having a detrimental effect. And my view is that what will happen is that donor privacy will become really, really valuable. Yes, I agree. And I think we we talked um, off air briefly just about the practice of, you know, you decide, yes, okay, on the street person who's a um, big charity, I'll give you some money. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're getting emails, you're getting calls, you're on some list or registry that's mm-hmm. sold from one charity to another. Mm-hmm. And it just... Um, it's it's devilish. It's it's it's. I, th- I think that's pretty bankrupt and pretty morally bankrupt. But also, you just kind of 
you get um, donor burnout a little bit and mm-hmm. fatigue. Mm-hmm. I call it ask exhaustion. Yeah, maybe it's ask exhaustion. But yeah. I also feel like um, maybe this is a digital physical world thing, but just say you go out and you're bombarded on the street by people in your space asking you for money and then while you're on the train, you get a call from some charity that's got your details asking you for money yeah. and then you get an email on your phone from another um, charity that's asking you for mm-hmm. money. You can just be like... Oh, it's just it, it never it never stops. I yeah. mean, we're kind of our own worst enemy, maybe in some ways, the charity sector, because we, you know, there's so many charities, mm-hmm. and everyone is in this scramble for resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a real mm. issue, and I think the participation in donor co-ops, which is what you're referring to, yeah. where you'll give to one charity, mm. and then after you, um, you know, after a year or two, you realise that that charity's swapped or sold your data to six or seven other charities. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's just really annoying, mm. isn't it? Like, yes, it might have been in the fine print that I didn't read, but I didn't consent to that knowingly. I hate that. And World Vision doesn't participate mm. in co-ops, and I really respect that. Mm. So, so they respect we respect our donor base um, enough that we don't participate in that. But I can understand the pressure. Um, attrition rates are high. Donors are leaving. Mm. You know, this is I'm making comments sector-wide. Yep. Um, but to me, there's a link about you know you can't you can't over ask and ask exhaust people forever mm. you know it's going to have it's going to kick back and maybe it already is i think it is and I, and i think that's why the sector is sort of needing to come up with new ways to mm-hmm. get people to participate whether it's sort of crowdfunding or whether it's um you know mm-hmm. different modes whether it's you know, big projects, equity raises, or something. Mm-hmm. Um, what do you sort of see coming down the pipeline as the new, the new form of you know giving? So I think, well, for me, you know, going back to kind of my all the tithing, but also the um, entrepreneurial kind of bent I yeah. always have. I've been exploring for four or five years a, a business that I set up, which is called Give One, mm-hmm. or the Give One Project. Which is, I decided ten percent tithing was too much for most people, and I thought, wouldn't it just be great if People well, I think you're absolutely right. Could give one percent. Yep. Um, and it would be essentially a you know a one a platform for giving, where you could give to any DGR one charity and receive one tax receipt at the end of the year. One thing, kind of like what our community does. Yep. Um, which is great, but the, but with an inbuilt function um, that you could opt into around privacy. Yep. So you can. So if if it was me, I would. Put all my giving through Give One, and it would spit out the channel. Yeah, World Vision, yeah, and Fred would, Hollows. That's and the it, dream. And it would remove consolidated um, tax deductible yeah, receipt with without um, without uh, all the individual charities having my personal contact details. Yeah. So it would be giving on generosity on my own terms. But as I say that, like I hear myself say that, and I think you're a fundraiser, Joe. You know, this is. In many ways, I'm a little bit conflicted about it. Yeah, but, but that's, why, that's part of the reason you're the most interesting person to ask about things like this because mm, you have two lenses by which you have to see it and reconcile it and that's grapple right. with it. That's yeah. right. So I agree with myself and I disagree with myself. Mm. But but I think donor privacy is, is and will become very, very important. Yeah, it's, it sort of sounds like what you're um, alluding to is like a sort of clean giving. It's like giving without the bloat or the, or the um, confusion around privacy or the – all that kind of stuff, consolidated, clean. That would definitely be a good thing. I can say for myself, um, due to um, fundraising fatigue and choice fatigue around what to do and what not to do, Mm. I've opted for planned giving where I just sort of say each year, uh, each month I give 
you know, the tithe amount mm-hmm. uh, of my revenue to X charity mm-hmm. and that's all planned. So, so mm-hmm. that, that allows me to go about my life ignoring uh, 99% of the people outside uh, Elstowick Station trying to yeah. shake me down for cash. That's right. And the emails and the calls and the like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I'm a big fan of that. Do you sort of have a, um, a view around planned giving and sort of the idea that instead of, you know, more reactively giving, mm-hmm. perhaps just having a strategy? We know that people who plan their giving give more. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm all for that. Yep. So better better net effect. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. I think there'd be a fear from the, from the sector that, it, I mean, if someone came in with a platform that lots of people started using, which shut down, you know, access, charity access to the individual donors, I think that would be disruptive. Um, but... I can kind of understand it and I think that the the industry is in a way very vulnerable to change and innovation in giving, get, taking back some of the control and putting it in the donor's hand as opposed to the the fund seekers. Um, yeah, but I'd be all for it. I mean, I'd use it and I'm a fundraiser, you know. Enough said, enough said on that matter for sure. So, look, you're clearly very busy. You're about to duck out to Sydney. How do you um, find time for yourself and how do you unwind and sort of get your own mm-hmm. peace of mind and restoration these days? Peace of mind and restoration. I uh, have a Labrador, you know, close knit group of friends. I do a lot of work with other um, addicts and alcoholics getting sober, staying sober. So, that takes up quite a bit of mm-hmm. my own personal time. It's, one of the best things in my life. I like to travel, I like to keep busy. Um, I love conversations. Like I love this. Mm. I, I'm really, really enjoying being in the not-for-profit um, and philanthropic sector at the moment. I'm just, I feel like this, the last year or two, I'm just meeting the most incredible people Yeah, who just want to see great change. It's one of the things I love about this sector is, um, you know, you meet one person, they know another person, they, they think you should meet this person. Totally. And then then yeah. you sort of follow the rainbow and uh, you, yeah. you have a great time. That's right. And yeah. I, I would say I'm working really hard, but it, it, because I've found my niche, it doesn't necessarily feel like that. It, yeah. I can't wait to see what I've got on the next day. And that's just a really nice place to be, yeah. isn't it? And so just about generosity and giving, I mean, one thing that we often forget is that there are other ways to give outside of just giving, donating. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just talk a little bit about that and sort of what you suggest or what mm-hmm. you do yourself and mm-hmm. uh, what, how you think people can, you know, give back? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, I think giving of time is important. Mm. I think maybe for me my suggestion to people would be do that locally. Um because it can be hard from a charity's perspective to have, you know, you have a thousand people wanting to volunteer for you. It kind of takes more more effort sometimes to coordinate that those volunteer hours than it does to, um, you know, benefit. But, again, I shouldn't say that because every charity is different and every charity needs different things. World Vision doesn't need much volunteering in Australia because the predominant of our work is obviously overseas. Mm. Um, but I would really encourage people to give generously of their time. I think that's what connects you to other people. I think that's really important. Um, money, give as much money as you can. Mm-hmm. Charities need that. They're mission-driven, they're purpose-driven. 99.7% of them are awesome and worthy of trust and um, cash, give cash. The other thing that um, you can investigate is giving at World Vision. It's called Gifts in Kind. 
Um, so we actually take um, some products or some God, I'm not explaining this very well. I'll get in trouble, but what could like it might be medical beds for hospitals overseas mm-hmm. or um, uh, medical equipment that's still in date that you know clean syringes and clean whatever that can be shipped over. We do a lot of blankets. We do um, uh, sanitation products for women is mm-hmm. a big thing for us. Um, so you can, if it aligns with what the charity actually needs, you can provide gifts. Um, Goods in kind, sorry, not gifts in kind, mm. correct that. Um, yeah, which and lots of big companies will give generously of excess stock. It's awesome. Which is really powerful, yeah. That's great. So fascinating conversation. How can people connect with you um, and learn a bit more about your work and yourself generally? Mm-hmm. Um, they can send me an email. Yep. Which would just be joe.gleason at worldvision.com.au. Um Think I don't. I'm not very good at using social media, mm-hmm. um, but yes, I no. don't worry. None of us are. <laughs> <laughs> are you on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn. That's of course, good. Yes, of course. Joy Gleason, World Vision, LinkedIn. Yep. Wonderful. Yes. All right, great. Well, thank you so much for dropping in. My pleasure. Thank yeah. you for having me. It's been a pleasure. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 